In one trendy Denver neighborhood, right next to a golf course, we find an old home almost hidden in plain sight. 4401 West 50th Avenue. Unkept bushes cover the windows. Overgrown trees consume the front porch. He's been missing for more than a year. Inside, a 69-year-old man. He wouldn't look you in the eye. An urban hermit who permanently shut himself off from society. Uh, basically disappeared. So removed from life and people, nobody knew he vanished. We do know police found a body. A year after his family searched his home. Well, there's no way he was there when we searched after him. unsanitary conditions hindered their investigation. A year after he was declared missing. We'll be out with the health department. The mystery of Chuck came to a bizarre end. No more after the coroner's report. Who's to blame? How does a man become... He was found in his own home. home. Lost at home. Okay, all right, well, so here we are, Christy, at uh, the corner here. You can, hear the, you can hear the noise, can't you? It's pretty loud. It is loud, and that's why I, I looked up. I was just sitting at my dining room table doing a lot of paperwork, and there was, 15 minutes before that, there was nothing here. Yeah. The, it was know, quiet. It was quiet, and I heard the noise. And I looked out, and I go, oh, it's finally happening. Wow, they were, like, crunching through that. The denouement. A tractor's like like a hot knife through butter in that house. I mean, it's amazing. It looks, I mean, it looks like a sturdy house, but it's really taking it down. It is, yeah. yeah. Boy, it has been a while since we've updated this podcast. Several months. And now, here we are, back, and I'm with Christy. You may remember her as Chuck's neighbor, the retired doctor from episode two. We're at the corner of 50th and Tennyson, just a couple of doors down from her home, watching something happen that has been a long time coming. It's been going quickly. Yeah, they so. had to move all the trees out first, all the dead wood and such. Yeah. He's And I came and talked to him, uh-huh. and he said that he didn't want to mix the brick with the wood, which I thought was interesting. So that's the living room right there. This is the living room, and that's where they found him. And that's where he was essentially buried for, I mean, more than a year. For Possibly. at least at least a year, if yeah. not longer. It's kind of surreal to see that that living room now kind of empty because you know the photo that we had of, of the inside it was so full of debris that it just it looks totally different it is, I mean it doesn't look like you yeah, know the photo on your um, blog the photos that you had with the blog yeah. I mean it was just maybe three feet from the ceiling maybe a man in an excavator is demolishing Chuck's house first we watch the outer walls peel and crumble away The old bushes and trees are piled in a corner on one end of the property. People walking by are stopping and watching this whole scene with fascination. Kind of like a diorama in a museum, the living room where Chuck was found dead is wide open. You can almost see like when a lake recedes and there's like a water line. Right. You can almost see like, there might be a line there where you can kind of see like the debris. You can see the side, the black mark to the side of that doorway. Welcome to episode 10 of Blame Lost at Home. This is our final episode. You know, the more I think about it, you know, I've I've done this podcast now, we've done nine episodes, this is our 10th episode. The more I think about it, it's still like, it's still strange to me that this happened. Don't you think? It would seem strange, but it happens to people who live alone more than anyone would ever know. What's, What's going through your mind as you kind of watch this? I suppose the first thing is it's about time because this has been sitting here now, but they had to go through probate. But they sold the house very quickly. 
And then I guess there have been um, zoning issues to rebuild something here. Chuck's family sold the property for just over $300,000. The developer who bought it is now clearing it out to build a two-story home with a wraparound porch. The plans we found online says, quote, a brand new Denver Square in the Berkeley neighborhood. It's gonna be five bedrooms, four baths. It's gonna be expensive, I bet, super expensive. Other five bedroom homes are selling in the $1 million range here. As Chuck's house is cleared out, we learned the case in the police department will stay active. What does that mean? And what's new with Mystery Mike? You'll remember the last episode we spoke to him over the phone while he was wanted on several unrelated warrants. Again, Mike has never been a suspect in this case. We got a letter from Mike. In our newsroom, we call this kind of letter jail mail. Mike has been arrested. Before we get into the letter Mike wrote, let me update you on his criminal cases. He's been locked up in Adams County, just outside of Denver, for drugs. But there is, like, a lot more going on with Mike here. He's also locked up on another case, on this wild, violent robbery. I'll try to sum it up because the police report, it's long and it's a rigid read. Here we go. It happened one night in May in the town of Frederick, a small town north of Denver that has become this bedroom community. The police there received a strange call. A guy there was saying that his friend had just called him and he needed help and to call the police. Officer B. Manley was dispatched to check things out. He drove up to a warehouse that had a series of garages. The mysterious victim who needed help worked in an auto repair shop at this location. It was past 8 p.m., dark, and nobody seemed to be around. As Officer Manley rolls up, he sees tire marks in the dirt as if somebody peeled out. And then he saw a large pool of blood on the south side of the building. Then, a broken pair of glasses on the ground near that blood. As Officer B. Manley continued to look for the injured parties, he observed a bloody handprint on the south wall of the building. But there was no sign of the victim here. I mean, this, this sounds like a Law & Order episode. Turns out that victim drove himself three miles to a come-and-go, that's a gas station, by the way, in the next town over. That victim is a guy named Brandon, a mechanic who was beat up really bad. His cell phone was stolen, and he ended up in the ICU. The police report goes on to say Mike Galusha is one of two suspects in this case. The other guy is some sort of accused meth head who briefly worked for Brandon. Turns out Brandon didn't like working with, quote, tweakers. So this police report here paints Mike like a violent thug helping out a methed up buddy with a little retaliation. Mike is accused of severely beating up Brandon with the handle of a carjack. Mike's trial in that case is set for March of 2019. Again, Mike is not a suspect in Chuck's case. It's clear though, he's got a criminal history and if this police report is true, a violent one. So what about Mike's connection to Chuck? In our last episode, Mike said he never contacted Chuck, just went to his house to ask about a car. Basically, uh, I was trying to find somebody who owned the property to see if they were interested in selling the, the car. Let's now go to his own written words. Okay, here it is. In my hand, 
I have an envelope that is definitely from the Adams County Detention Facility. On the envelope, it has my last name, Hohola, with the station address. In the upper left corner, it has the name Michael Galusha, as we know him as Mystery Mike. So I wrote to Mike Galusha while he was locked up, asking him to reconsider a TV interview. Uh, because when we went out there to the facility a few weeks ago, he declined to talk with us on camera, so I wrote him a handwritten letter. Ooh, it is long. Wow, this letter is... It's a handwritten in pencil, two pages front and back on one sheet of paper. Hello, I hope all is well. My apology on declining you an interview. My concern with your story is it seems as if you or this family are trying to place blame rather than honest closure. In this letter, Mike goes on and he gets pretty judgmental against Chuck's kids, implying they didn't do enough for their dad. He then goes into his regrets about visiting Chuck's house. He says, quote, I wish to reconsider finding an abandoned house with abandoned cars in the backyard. I wish to reconsider looking at these cars there and knocking on this abandoned house's front door. I wish to reconsider leaving a note at this house's front door. I wish to reconsider driving by weeks later to find this note still on the door. I wish to reconsider taking information, his name, address, etc., from his mail to do an internet search and finding his now saddened, guilt-filled family. Near the end of this letter, Mike goes on. He says, I regret contacting his family and digging up a forgotten, shame-filled time in a past they left long ago. Although I can relate to this person, in no way do I share responsibility in this matter. Mike continues with this final thought. He says, quote, In closing, who is to blame? I am not sure I can give this answer correctly or peacefully, but if my limited education and or beliefs serve me correctly, I would say Mother Nature or his higher power, calling of a lonely, broken man to finally come home. Sincerely, Ray otherwise known as Michael Ray Galusha, or as we've been calling him, Mystery Mike. Denver police tell us they spoke to Mike about Chuck while he was locked up. That interview didn't change anything in Chuck's case. Again, Mike is not a suspect in Chuck's death. All right, uh, Chief, if you can just say your first name and your last name that way. That way I, I get your name right. Uh, Paul and... Jeremy, my last name is Pazin. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies once again for jacking up your last no, name. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining us, Chief. Paul Pazin was the commander in District 1. That's the district where Chuck's house is, or was. He's now Denver's chief of police, the city's top cop. Okay. What's the status of this uh, Chuck Ferry case? Now, it's, uh, it's an open case based on the, the ME, the medical examiner's uh, results. It's uh, undetermined, and... Uh, we're uh, continuing to, to have the case uh, open. Um, if if uh, evidence of a crime comes forward in years from now, then uh, it, it protects the integrity of investigation. We're not going to um, close a, a case that has an undetermined method of, of death. So it sounds like it's going to remain open indefinitely then. Correct. So are there detectives actively investigating the case, or is it kind of just waiting to see if something comes in from the public or something like that? Uh, I, I think you characterized it pretty good. You were uh, a, a commander in the district when the, the Chuck Ferry case w w was happening. What do you recall about that case? What do you remember? Uh, I personally responded uh, out there, and um, I, you know, I, I did. I personally, I, I didn't go inside the home, but I did 
uh, visit the location and. What do you remember about that day? I, mean, I know you handled tons of cases. Right. Do you remember anything significant uh, about being well, there at the property that day? Uh, it, it was cold. It was a, a cold day when, when uh, you know, this was uh, discovered, and and uh, you know, it was some some difficult conditions, and that's why you know part of the reason why you know I, I don't go inside on on scenes, uh, but I do uh, often visit the location just to get an understanding. Remember, in prior episodes, we found there was a clear communication breakdown between Denver police and environmental health over Chuck's case. Officers clearly understood that Chuck was likely buried and dead in his own house, but they did not relay that information to environmental health directly. They called the city's 311 system, and that didn't go anywhere. It took more than 380 days to find Chuck from the moment a neighbor first called 911 and told the city she thought he was dead in the house. When you were... Uh uh, in this district when this was going on. Did you make any direct decisions or any direct orders on this case? Not at all. Not at all? No. But you you saw it come across your radar? Yes. Okay. What do you recall? Do you recall anything, any specifics when it came across your radar during those days? I, I was uh, aware that uh, a community resource officer was looking into the, the situation itself, and then I was aware uh, when we made the, the discovery and responded out to the scene. In our reporting, we found police didn't have direct contact uh, during the time with environmental health regarding Chuck's case. And it seemed like there was a clear communication breakdown between the police department and environmental health uh, during the handling of this case. Um, from your position as chief, now where you sit, has anything changed regarding that? Directly as far with, with environmental health? Yeah, is there any better communication or anything like that? I, I don't know the specific email. I don't know the specific details that you're talking about. I couldn't comment on uh, whatever communication breakdown uh, you're referring to in this. I, I believe that uh, you have spoken to major crimes. There's a feeling among some of our viewers and our listeners who did listen to our podcast that police didn't treat Chuck like he was a human. Any reaction to that? You know, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that uh, because that's the exact opposite of what we want to accomplish here. It, and, and, it, and it's really what I described to you. A death is a death. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy for a family if they lose their loved one in a violent crime, in a traffic accident, as a result of a drug overdose, or as a result of uh, suicide. Uh, mental health challenges often uh, impact these types of issues, and we, are, uh, we want to ensure that we are doing everything possible to reduce those social harms that, that cause uh, a negative impact on our community. I mean, I, I took great pride in uh, Northwest Denver, the neighborhoods that I grew up in, um, very familiar with the area uh, where this uh, took place, uh, spent time as a kid uh, in there, time as a, an adult um, up there. So uh, there, there's a deep connection to the community in, in Northwest Denver. That's, I, I'm a proud Northsider who graduated from North High School and uh, I never lose sight of, of where I uh, come from. This uh, is a tragedy, uh, you know, and, and from my perspective, um, you know, we all need to take responsibility for this. My understanding is that, you know, the title is blame. I, you know, I was thinking about that, and, and I don't know uh, if blame is the best word or if it's, uh, you know, responsibility. We as a society uh, need to do more. We're responsible for taking care of our family, 
our friends, our neighbors. And that's what we want out of this. I uh, applaud you for bringing light to this issue. Uh, mental health issues, mental health challenges need as much attention a, a, as possible. And if we have friends, neighbors, family members that are coming forward when, when, when people are experiencing these types of challenges and they're uh, willing to get them uh, connected to the resources or trying to find different ways to get them uh, connected, it's a way that we can avert uh, tragedies. It's a way that we can prevent uh, deaths from these social harms. I reached out to Chuck's family for final thoughts on their dad. I received a very short email from his son. It says, Jeremy, in regards to the follow-up interview, I've talked with my siblings and have thought about this quite a bit. Unfortunately, we just really want to move on from all of this and really don't want to meet for an interview. You have been great throughout this whole process, so thanks for shedding a light on the problem of hoarding and mental illness. Thanks. Jeff Frary. I found this email totally fitting and kind of perfect for our conclusion. Just want to move on. Makes sense, right? So at the end of Chuck's story, we ask, who's to blame? A lot of people connected to Chuck's case don't like the title of our podcast. Nobody likes to be blamed. I can't really say exactly who. I think it's really up to you to figure that out. What do you think? Can one person be blamed for Chuck's awful and sad ending? One agency? Two? How does a man go missing for a whole year only to end up dead in his own living room? Mental illness? A break in city communication? Apathy? These are words and questions that come to my mind. As Chuck's home is knocked down, so is the last physical connection to his life. The city is constantly changing and evolving. And I wonder who's going to move into the new home at 50th and Tennyson. Maybe a nice family. While Chuck was lost for many years in his own mind, maybe there is something to be found in his story. Maybe a little understanding. I hope so. Thank you for listening to Blame Lost at Home. We are looking for our next podcast idea. If you have thoughts on a topic or story we should look into, email me at jeremy at 9news.com.